Arthur, does it help to have someone to talk to? My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. What? If you smile. Fear and sorrow, smile, and maybe tomorrow you find that life is still worth What's so funny? Freak! <laughs> Welcome to this uh, very special episode of the Beef Podcast. Uh, one of those things we're talking about, talking about a um, new release. It doesn't happen too often, people, but more often than not now, because uh, I said this is uh, one of my most anticipated releases, and I'm not lying, because I, uh, well, we'll get into it. Uh, but we're going to talk about Joker from 2019, and with me tonight, starting from, uh, I'm going to call it my left, Brandon Young from the Anatomy of Fear podcast and many other projects. How you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, uh, talking about this movie. Cool, cool. Uh, next up is the guy podcast podcast with on the rug from the NFW and uh, Wild Man Willis reviews on the YouTube's. Willis Wheeler is here. How you doing, sir? When you call my name, just call me Joker. Nice. And man, he's no no introduction, so I'm not gonna give him one. From from the horror cast and no more room in no more room in hell. Mr. Venom is here. How you doing, sir? Mr. Venom. Sorry about that. Mute, mute, mute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, greetings and salutations, listeners. Yes, Gary, I'm doing well. How you doing, buddy? Fine. Saw this fine movie today, and I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about. It. I'm a little, little late to the party, but uh, yeah, I'm glad we're all together tonight to talk about this film. Um, I guess the the best way to start with this is um, the cheapo IMDb pl- plot synopsis. 
Um, it says in Gotham City, mentally troubled comedian Arthur Fleck is disregarded and mistreated by society. He then embarks on a downward spiral of revolution and bloody crime. This patch brings him face to face with his alter ego. He doesn't call himself the Joker, but Joker will call him. Yeah. And uh, this stars, of course, Joaquin Phoenix as uh, Arthur Fleck, uh, Joker, if you will. Robert De Niro as uh, Rupert Pupkin. Very uh, <laughs> frankly, we'll get into that for sure. Um, Zazie Beats, who I, I think. What is this woman in? I have to look this up. Uh, uh, is she uh, Deadpool? Yeah, yeah, yeah Deadpool, she, yes. She's um Domino. Domino. Deadpool. Yeah. Yep. She's an attractive lady. Yeah. Yes. Francis Conroy is uh Mama Fleck Penny Fleck. Brett Cullen is Thomas Wayne. Uh plays a plays a role in this movie. And some other folks we'll get into later on, I'm sure. Oh, Mark Marin shows up, I forgot about that. Ah, <laughs> We're here on a podcast about old man aches and pains and, you know, old hipster talk. Listen to the Marin podcast. It's, it's all there for you people. Um, <laughs> directed by, uh, really out of the realm here, the guy that gave his road trip at old school, Todd Phillips, written and directed by. And um, I'm just going to get, get the general thoughts right now without without giving too many spoilers in the, the first segment here and ask Wad the Wild Man, who is a resident comic book expert, uh, what he thought about Joker, man. Man, this was a cool take on the character, Joker, even though, to me, this ain't really an origin story of the Joker, because Joker is an unreliable narrator, so this is just probably one of the many (laughs) tales he tells people that his origin is, so I just took it as an Elseworld, or maybe the Joker telling a story about himself that wasn't that didn't really happen. Cool, Brandon. <laughs> uh, I'll keep my little part short because I have a lot to say, but I'll say this is probably my favorite movie in the last 10 years. So uh, <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Short and sweet Venom. What's up, man? Um, I'm going to echo what Brandon said. This movie is amazing. Joaquin Phoenix is an absolute joy in this film. Um, it's probably one of the grittiest, most realistic looks at mental illness I've ever seen in cinema. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about it, and I'm sure we'll spend the majority of this show doing exactly that. So, yeah, absolutely loved it. Oh, yeah, I mentioned before, you know, this is one of my most anticipated films of the year. I, I seen the teaser, which I prefer, and I was I was I was sold right away because I, I seen the way they were going right away, and um. I was not disappointed in, in my, my, my viewing of this film. And I, I, th- I hate that people, you know, are very passive of it. People that haven't seen it. <clears throat> Cause most of the people that, that, that were naysayers that wasn't seen it, at least gave it some love, especially even the most ones that I got the most flack from that said, they're not going to see it. They're not going to like it. Even those people had some, something nice to say about the film. And that just proves, you know, what kind of film it is you know it's not just this this hyper violent mess it it takes it takes them a while to get there and you're you're right there with him on that journey and i I appreciate the 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 long strange trip that i took and i'm glad it wasn't three hours because this could have been a lot longer in the wrong hands and uh Mm. (laughs) um yeah Spoiler territory, man, and uh, I know I know Venom has notes that we could all bounce off of. I'm, sh- I'm sure he does. 
Venom, hit us with some logic, brother. Well, I mean, as I mentioned already, the, the, the take on mental illness in this movie is just so organic and gritty and really painful to watch. I mean, the scenes where Arthur Fleck laughs himself into a sore throat where his actually his throat starts to close up and he starts to cough and he grabs his chest. I mean, you can see the the physical pain that he's feeling, but you can also see the pain in his eyes. Um, the fact that they went with that um and I don't know how much of a spoiler this really is, but uh, going with the fact that Arthur Fleck actually has a mental illness that causes him to laugh at inappropriate times. I thought that was a genius, absolutely brilliant move by Todd Phillips to do. Even though this movie's not canon, I agree with Willis that because of how certain scenes in the movie are presented to us as having not actually happened, as having happened in Arthur's head, I feel like this is this movie is a perfect example of their unreliable narrator and to the point where you walk away from the theater kind of those of us who are you know incredibly contemplative of our films after we watch them uh we kind of walk away thinking man did any of that movie actually happen was arthur fleck just in a mental institution the entire film and he's just relaying this story to his psychiatrist or doctor or whoever and and that could potentially be, I mean, honestly, no scenes in this movie may have actually in in the real world of the joke of Joker may have actually not even happened. This whole thing may be just a giant fever dream. And I love that aspect. Now, that's not the take that I'm going to go with. Um, like I said, this movie's not canon. I am also or at least was a big reader of Batman uh, when I was younger. I kind of moved on to Marvel when I turned like, I don't know, 13, 14, 15. But early on, I was very heavy on DC with Batman and Superman. And the Joker, you know, he was always uh, an odd character in the sense that you couldn't really pick out his motivations. And those are usually the most dangerous villains. I mean, villains that want money, want power, want to take over the world, want revenge. Um, it's almost like they're easier to deal with for the hero because there's a certain psychology behind what they're doing. There is zero psych behind what Arthur Fleck does at the end of the film. Obviously, I'm sure it makes sense to him in his own head, but watching the events unfold, it's like, it's basically watching the journey of an unfortunate soul who was failed by the state first. First and foremost, the state failed him long ago when he was a child. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit as well. Um, but, you know, along with seeing the, the state fail him, his own mother fails him, his employers fail him, just about everyone in this film fail him, except for one amazing little person who he actually lets live. And that and that kind of shows that Arthur Fleck isn't just a an animal. You know what I mean? He doesn't just kill anybody that he sees. He realized that that little guy in the movie was the only person who ever showed him any respect or kindness throughout his life, aside from his mother. And even though he murdered another human being right in front of him, he had no problem letting him go. And man, it's it's really hard to watch this movie and not walk away being a fan of the villain. And, you know, so I understand a lot of the... Um, 
complaints that the movie's getting, how society is thinking this could adversely affect people with mental illness. It could make people think that going violent is the way to go or, you know, starting a gang or blah, blah, blah. Um, but I just feel like those people, the naysayers, are missing the entire point of of this movie and it's just one man's journey it's a character study more than anything this film is a character study of arthur fleck more even more so than quote unquote joker because he doesn't even really become the entity known as the joker until the third act of the film as most people would probably guess as this is an origin story but yeah I mean, um, let me not dominate this conversation because I have, I have so much to say, but I definitely, I mean, I want to hear what everyone thought of it because, you know, I'm singing, I'm sitting here singing its praises and ultimately there are going to be people who don't like it. There's no such thing as one film that makes everybody happy. So I would love to hear um, you guys' opinion, both on how they handled the origin and how they handled his journey to eventually become Joker. So yeah, go ahead. Somebody jump in here, Brandon. Yeah, I, go, Brandon, yeah. my friend. Yeah. So I, you, you know, Jerry, I think what you mentioned about the mental illness thing—that is what really, really struck me about this film. So, upon first watch, I think I was blown away by the performances and the score and the sound and just how technically well it was done from the acting and everything. I mean, just beautifully shot and it, this great haunting droning score. Uh, but it was when I took my son to go see it, it was a completely different movie. And I think it's because I was able to focus in on the mental health aspect. And I walked out of that theater exhausted and drained and, I mean, really sad uh, because mm -hmm. I think you see just the horrors that he's been through and this emotional journey that you're going on with him the whole time from, you know, just seeing the strange relationship with his mother to him wanting to insert himself into different worlds and different lives. Like when he's watching, um, when he's watching TV and inserting himself in those things. And then, uh, I don't want to get spoilery with it, but you know, just different relationships he has. And I just, I, w I felt heartbroken. And then you're, again, you're going through this journey with him and then you find out what really happened to him as a child and who his mother really was. And it was just, man, I, you know, there, there's this, there was this dude that was sitting two people over from us and he was laughing at everything he was just one of those idiots that laughs at everything and he had a really obnoxious laugh too which made it worse and he would laugh and all those scenes would just make me sad because again i think you're seeing the depths of of where he is and it man it was just heartbreaking yeah that's the thing as as movie watchers we see the public face of mental, well, not just as movie watchers, but as human beings, like we see the public face of mental illness. We'll see people, you know, be it homeless people on the street talking to themselves or yelling at themselves or whatever the case may be. But with this film, we also get the inside look, the home life, the professional life, uh, everything that this guy has to deal with on a day to day basis. And it really, really puts a punctuation on everything that this guy has. To, I mean, every day of this guy's life was a struggle. It was a battle, a fight, not just against his condition, um, you know, and to keep himself from laughing at inappropriate times, but just, you know, being able to keep a job, being able to take care of his mother, his elderly ailing mother. I mean, just, yeah, it, it's really hard Especially for somebody like me, it's really hard to not look at this as a guilty pleasure where I'm just smiling because finally the bullied, you know, get their day. Because ultimately, this is a look at 
a, you know, a psychopath, a, you know, someone who's who in his later life is going to kill indiscriminately. And we have to understand that even though I watch this and because of my personal experience and my past of being bullied in high school, you know, for those who don't know, I grew up a fat kid um, amongst very, you know, in shape, athletic high school kids. So obviously I got bullied a lot. And so there's that guilty pleasure for me, especially in that subway scene, you know, of watching Joker kind of lash out at those three Wall Street guys. And look, everyone listening, I'm not saying that murder is the appropriate response to being bullied. I am absolutely not saying that. But to see bullies go after an individual and just not think about what could happen. That's the thing. Could he have a gun? Could he have a knife? Could he be a complete psychopath? I, Bullies I, don't think about that. I say this often. You know, you never know if you see a stranger on the street, even somebody you know, what kind of day they're having or what they're capable of. Because it, yes, it's you know, everybody has a breaking point and everybody has reacts to things different ways and right. And that's the thing that bullies don't think about is that everyone has that line. Everyone has the line that cannot be crossed. And once it is crossed, forget it. They snap. We all have that line, you know, be it, you know, if you're a parent, then you've got that line with your kids. If you're in a relationship, you've got that line of, you know, kind of protection with your significant other, whatever the case may be. And bullies don't think about that. They don't think about, is this going to be this, the, the time that this guy finally lashes out? So, like I said, I am not um, championing, championing um, murder as a response to uh, to being bullied, but I will tell you, I had a smile on my face in that scene. It may have been very shocking for some people to watch, maybe people who've never had to deal with bullying in their life, but for someone who was bullied relentlessly in high school, that scene left me smiling. And if that makes me a bad person, so be it. I mean, I'm a horror fan, I'm a heavy metal fan. Most people would probably consider me a bad person anyway. But yes, because of my personal experience with bullying, this movie is like just the Bible of, you know, what to do when you're being bullied. <laughs> like I said, and again, I'm reiterating, I do not support murder in response to bullying, but when it happens, I will be the first one to stand and applaud. And also let me tell you a little story about the first time I went to see this in the theater. When Arthur Fleck kills those three guys in the subway, I actually laughed out loud and applauded in my seat. The girl who was sitting on my left got up and switched seats with somebody else in her group. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> she, she didn't want to sit next to me anymore. I think, but, but then, it, but there you go. There's another societal response to what they think is a mental illness. She probably thinks I'm, you know, a sociopath because I'm laughing at it, but ultimately it's a movie. It's fiction. It's my prerogative to laugh or not laugh or yell or whatever the hell, you know, during the movie. So, but, you know, I, I just found it very, very poignant that in The Joker, a movie about mental illness, I let out a little bit of a chuckle during kind of a tense, controversial scene and somebody moves. I, I just thought it was just perfectly poignant. So, yeah, I had to relay that. But um, again, my God, I feel like I'm taking over here. Please, somebody cut me off. <laughs> well, then. Well, I got something that's going to totally blow your mind. About this movie that a lot of people are missing over. Arthur Fleck. That's not his real name. Y'all know that, right? 
Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. Uh, he was adopted, so yeah. He was adopted, so basically, he doesn't really have a true name. Mm-hmm. And as in the, the comic book with the Joker, we don't really know what his real name is. So that's a cool Easter egg that they dropped in the movie, so I'm glad they did that. They ain't do it like it was in the um, 89 Batman or uh, in the animated series where they actually gave him the name Jack Napier. So right. I was thinking about that. So, <laughs> But Joker's had multiple um, backstories told about him in the comic books, right? Because he was oh. there was the Red Hood storyline. Um, and then there was the one that you were talking about from the animated movie. I remember seeing that where the guy was a family man, right? And he lost his wife and child. So, I mean, Joker's had multiple backstories. And I understand that this particular film, you know, 2019's Joker is not canon. And I I totally respect that. You know, I, I look at it as Todd Phillips' version of Joker's backstory. And if other directors jump on here, I mean, if they're, if they're able to do um, origin stories for comic book characters that aren't canon, I think this could start a great trend. I mean, could you imagine like a dark and gritty, um, I don't know, um, Craven the Hunter movie or something, you know, like take a villain that might be misunderstood. A bad example with Craven the Hunter, but still take a take a, a villain that's maybe misunderstood like Joker and have a great Hollywood director and writer come in and do his backstory. I think that would be a trend that I would absolutely support, especially after seeing what directors are able to do with Joker and a couple of years ago with Logan. Uh, Logan is another example of a quote unquote comic book movie that doesn't feel like a comic book movie. It's a really ultimately, good movie. Yeah, exactly. And Joker is the same thing. Joker, in my opinion, does not feel like a comic book movie. It is a straight drama. It is Todd Phillips' interpretation of the Joker's backstory. And I think it's brilliant. And I hope it starts a trend in Hollywood. Obviously, you know, let's not overdo it. But, you know, like I said, I I have no problem with seeing outside of canon comic book movies, especially when they're done as masterfully as this one was. Are you guys fans of The Dark Knight, the Heath Ledger version of the Joker? Because I know that comparison is coming up a lot right now. Absolutely. I'm a fan of them, but I don't I don't compare the two because I think it's two totally different um, performances. I mean, you, you can't really. I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of people are complaining about this are people who aren't aware of the, the, the Jokers and then the, all the iterations he's gone through. He's, he's been around since 1940. Mm-hmm. And comic writers in general, you know, we, we have, you know, canon storylines in, in multiple Batman books. We have one shots in which you could take a character and make him something totally different. You, yeah. graphic. Now, there's so many ways to go. There's no way to say that this is the right way the character should be because the Joker has been different so much over the years mm-hmm. by so nope. many different writers and totally. creators that you can't really say, okay, this is the way it should be because that character... I think out of all the Batman characters, even Batman himself, has been changed so much in all these decades that it's, you can't say, oh, this is the way he should be like. Because no, totally. you can't totally. say that at all. Mm-hmm. No, and the only reason I ask is because I I think I'm, I'm the only person I know. I can't stand The Dark Knight. I hated that movie. So Wow. Wow. It, his, <laughs> his, his performance is good, but it, it is one third of a good movie. It, it really is. 
I really like that movie, but the one that I can't stand is the one after that. Oh, like uh, Rises, they totally screwed up Batman and Bane with that one. Let's not talk about that bad, that bad dream. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, I don't want to derail us. I was just yes. curious. Okay. But yeah. Uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about too was just the setting of this movie, um, Gotham City, obviously, as every Batman and Joker iteration is. But I feel like this is the most realistic, organic Gotham city that's ever been set to film mind you i'm not saying that it's comic book perfect because gotham city in the comic book does look a lot like tim burton's gotham it even looks a little bit like christopher nolan's gotham but this one as far as being grounded in realism this is the best interpretation of gotham city we've ever gotten and i have a reason for that And uh, the reason, at least the reason that I think um, this movie is the best interpretation of Gotham is because one of the producers on this movie, her name is Emma Tillinger-Koskoff. She is actually Martin Scorsese's producer. She has been since The Departed. So since 2006, she's done all Martin Scorsese movies. She's also done some other stuff, too. Um, But in the film industry, she's called and this isn't I'm not making this up. She's actually called the Queen of New York. And the reason is, is because her films that are set in New York are the grittiest, most realistic look takes of New York out there. Um, So the fact that she was able to work on this, even though uh, The Irishman, which is going to be coming out next uh, soon, which is Martin Scorsese's next film, and of course, you know, she was the producer on that one as well, but she was technically still working on uh, the Irishman, when the when Joker started filming, Martin Scorsese, being good friends with Todd Phillips, actually gave them a permission to leave The Irishman early. Technically, she wasn't leaving that early because, like I said, principal uh, photography for The Irishman had already been completed. Um, but usually she sticks around to kind of help out in the editing room wherever she can or, you know, with marketing, promotions, things like that. Um, but yeah, Scorsese, um, apparently the story is that Todd Phillips and Scorsese are good friends. Todd Phillips actually sent um, Scorsese a script um, of the of Joker and actually asked him if he would want to produce on the you know executive produce or something like that. Uh, unfortunately, because the Irishman is still in post-production, Scorsese wasn't able to walk away with that because anybody who knows Scorsese knows even though he doesn't edit his the films, his films himself, he is in that editing room every second that his films are being edited. So um, he's a very busy guy during the post-production um, parts of his movie as well. Um, so anyway, yeah, like I said, Emma. Tillinger Koskoff, um, kudos to you, ma'am. You made Gotham City look spectacular, realistic, gritty, a city that I would flat out want to avoid. I mean, I love New York and I don't know that I'd want to go to her version of New York because she she really captures 70s and 80s New York just absolutely perfectly. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw her a a little kudos because I just absolutely love the look and feel of this film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it's my turn to to run my mouth about this fucking film. Uh, <laughs> people have you know seen the preview and they said, "Oh, that's Taxi Driver. That's that's King Comedy." And you know what? They're they're not wrong, but that's not all it is. Exactly. And let's just right. let's just put that out there right now that that's not all it is. No, most films 
have, you know, any director working in Hollywood today has directors that inspired him early on in his career. Um, you know, you might see somebody have a little bit of Hitchcock flair in their movies. It doesn't mean that they're ripping off Hitchcock. De it's Palma, that Hitchcock. The Palma made a career out of uh, aping up a Hitchcock. So there you go. So, but ultimately, it was still, you know, homages. It was still done with love because of how much these directors loved the the older directors that inspired them. Yes, this this movie feels a lot like Taxi Driver and King of Comedy. Ultimately, they have a lot of similarities, and um, a, a little bit later on, I'll talk about my literally my only nitpick I have about this movie. Um, which I have, I have is, a couple; they're really minor, though. You know? Exactly, they're so minor. Yeah. I mean, any gripe I would have about this film would be minor little nitpicks because ultimately this thing was near flawless. Brandon already talked about the soundtrack, the score, the cinematography in this movie is absolutely brilliant. Um, there are some shots in this movie taken directly out of Taxi Driver, specifically when Arthur is in his living room after he gets that gun and he's kind of pointing it at the television. That apes... Travis Bickle's, you know, looking into the mirror. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Um, it, it's not an exact like beat for beat reproduction, but I, as soon as I saw Arthur in his living room pointing the gun, like with his arm outstretched, I'm like, that's Travis Bickle. Holy crap. And that's when it struck me that, holy shit, I'm watching the Joker meets taxi driver. And ultimately I didn't have too much of a major problem with it. Uh, other than a minor, minor little nitpick, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit later. Yeah, I, I love the film for, for a lot of reasons, and it, most of it is Joaquin Phoenix's performance, and I, I think the character itself is uh, the, 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 the amp up of where you get to the end, where he literally just switches, and, um, and I... Um, there's so many things. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to give away everything, obviously... But I, I love the fact that he um, writes his jokes or whatever in the, in, in his uh, the, the notebook that's supposed to be for his mental health. Mm -hmm. So I, I I love to read the whole thing, but you know the whole <laughs> thing. Looking through the thing is just like yeah, this, there's some stuff that's off in here, and it's in the yeah. bag. It probably reads like a manifesto. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love the fact that um it was a nice nice little Easter egg, and I'm sure this isn't a big surprise to anybody. The the club that he worked that he did a stand-up that was called Pogo's, which is, mm. if you don't know what Pogo is, that's what, what um, good old uh, Gacy called himself, the Clownist Clown version. And uh, yep. that was a nice uh, tribute there to all you serial killer fans out there. And um, <laughs> just, the, man, the, the the mental breakdown of the character from the beginning, he just, he just seems like a real uncomfortable dude who's been disappointed most of his life. Yeah. And I, um, the mother waiting for the the letter from from Thomas Wayne constantly. It finally comes, obviously, but her mental illness and her waiting for this letter and their their love for the Marie. Um, oh, what's his last name? The, um, what's what's Dinero's last name? Marie Franklin. Yeah, Marie. Their love for Marie Franklin reminded me of and this film. I don't like talking about too much. I know it's a good film, but it's a very depressing film. Requiem for a Dream it reminded me of that quite a bit. A little bit, yeah. Maybe yeah. not quite as soul crushing as yeah. Requiem for a Dream. She, she yeah. was, she wasn't quite there, but she was on the way to, 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 to yeah, 
the, the and that's and that, that's another like thing that a lot of naysayers are talking about the scene you know with his mother you know the scene in the hospital um a lot of people don't like that a lot of people don't like his decision you a, know a, a lot of this that's this is my bitch about the film when he makes the churn to to being a very aware of what he's doing you mm-hmm. know after he finds out the mental history of his mother and you know, stuff, and this is a big problem with big thing with mental, mental, mentally, uh, mentally ill people is that a lot of them forget, choose to forget stuff and bury it in the back of their brain. And him reading the mother's case study and all the stuff that happened, it's like he was remembering it all at once. And I, I knew he, he, he puts a pill over her face to kill her people after he finds out what he finds out. And I kind of telegraphed, I kind of, this kind of telegraphed that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, him, that's that's about the only real telegraph thing there was to me was that because I I had a feeling that he was going to do that once he found out, and then his demeanor in the hospital room after he found out he just was smoking the cigarette like almost like maniacally smoking the cigarette like just like basically telling her like how how could you have done this how could you lie to me all these years you know being a much much like much like him you know she she chose to she chose to forget a lot of things too. Because she's mentally ill as well. This, this is well. She chose to forget things, but she also chose to ignore things. Yeah. I mean, don't forget we get the backstory of you know the the abuse, the physical and emotional abuse that young Arthur Fleck had to deal with from you know mom's ex boyfriend or boyfriend at the time, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when you really. <sighs> And again, this might be my warped mind, you know, from, like I said, having been bullied, having been lied to, you know, in the past. And his response to me felt real. It felt incredibly real. That's how somebody would react. This person who you thought was your mother, your everything, turns out she's not even your damn mother. She's not your mother. She allowed someone to abuse you so much to the point where you were near death and obviously I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be implied that because of that physical abuse that he took, that's what caused his mental illness. Um, yeah, you know, cause they mentioned head brain trauma and head trauma. So. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like once, once he finds all, finds out all this information, finds out that, you know, the mom was lying or at least allegedly lying about the Thomas Wayne connection. It's like that response felt very natural. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that anybody should do it. I'm saying that in the moment, you know, with with your, you know, with all your synapse firing in your brain and, you know, you have all this information now for for Joker's character arc. It made 100 percent sense that he would smother that woman in that scene. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me. A lot of people are going to say she didn't deserve to die. And you're absolutely right. I'm not flat out saying that she deserved to be murdered necessarily. All I'm saying is that Arthur's response felt correct Um, in this, you know, like I said, with everything that he had gone through with where his brain was at that moment in time, he had just lost his job. I mean, everything just piling on top of piling that, you know, he, he just snapped and that's how you react. You, you find, you know, he obviously can't put his hands around Thomas Wayne, but no. the only thing that he could do was what he did in the hospital room. And even though it only gave him momentary peace, it still brought him a little peace. 
and that's what he that's what's going through his head you know so again i'm not justifying murder uh but i just feel like that's what 90 percent of people would probably do in that situation with everything that he's gone through including having the mental illness that's key though in this sense though i i i think it's not i in a way justified in a way because from a child he 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 has been humiliated and disappointed all the way through adulthood you know whether it's just interactions with people on the street and uh, i think that his speech you know when he's finally able to get, when he when he goes on the the murray show and you you could tell you know when he's going to go out he's very excited but then uh, murray starts to play the video again of you know basically ridiculing him again as he did on his show the night before a couple of nights or two weeks before that 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 demeanor changed, and you, you could tell that like yeah, this this is just gonna be, he's he's done, he's out to lunch forever, and <laughs> oh man. It, well, really, after he kills the guys on the subway, and you know, and he goes into that bathroom and he's kind of dancing, it's like there is like when that snap really starts because yeah. then also he goes off his medication. It's like we see this downward spiral in it, but it's almost like instead of where he's getting worse and worse, it's like him coming into who he really is, I guess. So who he's always been really, I mean, it's basically what the drugs have been suppressing. I think though, even with with all the murder happened, they know his, by his hands, of course, when he got the opportunity to go on the Murray show that, that he thought it was an actual break, you know, like say, okay, somebody's doing something positive for me. And then it quickly turns into a negative, you know, Mm-hmm. And he just he had the gun the whole time, so he obviously was going to do something with it, and, you know. But he he wasn't looking for an excuse at that point because he was so happy to be where he was at, and that just quickly went away, you know. With again with the ridicule like he's been having all of his life, and mm-hmm. you, you almost felt pity for him at that point. Like yeah, especially you know when he gives the whole speech about you know you 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 worry about these Wall Street guys when he basically confesses on live TV that he killed these Wall Street guys and. If if you see me on the street, you just step over me, stuff like that. And all this is fucking true. I mean, we've all done this before where, you know, any major metropolitan city has homeless that are just laying in the street, you know, looking for something to eat or whatnot. A lot of people don't even look their way, you know. Mm-hmm. These are people, and he's a person, and he felt he deserved more, and you know, he <clears throat> did what yeah. he did because of that. And I... I, I I respect him and 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 pity him at the same time, you know. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And going back to that scene with Murray Franklin, you know, near the end of the film, I mean, it also speaks to society's kind of misunderstanding of not just the poor, but like people, you know, accused of crimes. Think about the way Thomas Wayne talked on um, TV after it happened. And he talked about, oh, these three bright young men that worked for me. You know, would would his opinion have changed if he knew that those three kids beat the shit out of Arthur right before he pulled the trigger? And then Maury, uh, excuse me, Murray, did the exact same thing on the show. Basically, he's saying that he did a deplorable act and that how dare you feel justified, yet Murray doesn't know the whole story. And that's kind of society looking, getting little bits of information and then passing judgment. And that's pretty much Arthur's whole life. People learn one tiny little thing about him and then they pass judgment. The black woman on the bus with the kid, you know, 
he starts to laugh inappropriately. So instantly she starts judging him. And you know that's happened to Arthur literally his entire life. And I, I think when Murray did it to him on the show, it, that was just like, I think at that instant, that's when his suicide turned into homicide. That's when he's like, you know what? Fuck that. I don't deserve to die. But you know what? With the shit that's coming out of your mouth right now, I kind of think you do. So yeah, he kind of, you know... Admittedly, I think he, he fully intended to kill himself, you know, live, oh, live TV because yep. he, he had the whole putting the gun to his chin while it wasn't loaded yeah. kind of deal. And yeah. And you made a great point about the change of mood in his face. Like you could see he was smiling and jovial going on to the show. But you're right. The instant that Murray starts digging into him, talking about what a terrible thing that crime was, you see the look on his face slowly go from, you know, contentness to absolute disgust. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll argue what happened before that because you could tell, you know, when he was, you see the silhouette of him backstage, you know, dancing, getting ready to go out and, you know, be happy. Like, this is like the right. most happiest thing that ever happened to him. When he starts to play the video again of his, his stand up comedy, just, just to ridicule him more. Right, absolutely. No, you're his, right. His, 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 his body, body language changes right there, I think. Sure, absolutely. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, Murray, you know, Murray pretty much set his own fate by, you know, I mean, and that's the other thing I don't understand. It's like this guy just admitted to killing three guys on the subway live on television. Why on God's green earth would you antagonize him? Why wouldn't you just assume that he still has that gun on him, especially if he's coming on to the Murray Franklin show? to admit his guilt in that crime, to think that he's not armed is absolutely ignorant. So it, it, it goes right back to that bully mentality. Murray, Murray may not have been necessarily quote unquote bullying Arthur in that scene, but because he was talking down to him and talking about how deplorable the crime was and how those three nice young boys didn't deserve that, he, you know, Arthur just snapped and his suicide, like I said, Changed to homicide. And even though the seedling for the idea of changing his plan may have started when, you know, when he played that video, and you're totally, absolutely right about the body language changing at that moment. But yeah, having Murray talk down to him about that crime, I could just see it in his eyes. It just set him off to the point of, you know what? I don't deserve to die today, but I kind of think you do. So, you know, and obviously he's wrong. You know, again, I do not support murder. Uh, I'm going to be saying that a lot on this episode because of how jovial um, some of Joker's decisions in the movie made me, you know. And, and like I said, this is just 20 years of being bullied all through school, all through college, blah, 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 just kind of seeping up. So, like I said, somebody like me, I can see how Arthur Fleck's path would lead him to Joker. I absolutely see it. I don't agree with it. I'm not saying I support the concept of it, but I absolutely can see how it happened. And that's why, to me, this is by far the most grounded in reality comic book movie ever made. And I don't know that they'll ever be able to make one more grounded to reality than this one. I mean, this thing was stellar, and you know, I'm 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 frothing again talking no, about how okay. much I love this movie. <laughs> but back to the way you know he was talking to to, to Arthur, you know, and that 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 interview scene. I mean, it, it goes to to just human nature in general that that are not necessarily you know pompous but ignorant to, to the fact that 
people, you know, talk, talk, not talk down to like the mentally handicapped, but don't know how to act around mentally handicapped people. So they, they, they react the wrong way or they don't know that they're that way or they're mentally ill people. There's lots, there's lots of, there's lots of illnesses out there that aren't fixed with regular medicine. Even, even the mental meds don't work so well sometimes, you know, and there's a, there's a way to talk to people. There's a way to react to things. And Murray is just so pompous, you know, because he's 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 hosting this live television show, so he's gotta he's gotta turn it on that he's not using the right the right head brain there to to yeah. act right. And, and Murray is an older gentleman too, and you know I'm I'm nearing fifty myself, so I kind of I'm starting to get closer and closer to like Murray's mentality in the sense of oh all crime is bad, and to you know to an extent that statement is true all crime is bad, but you also have to admit that when you're talking about a crime that you did not witness, you don't know all the information, so it's not your place to talk down to someone who's accused of that crime because again you don't know. Know everything that happened. There is still such a thing as self-defense in this world. Now, ultimately, that was extreme self-defense. I understand that. But again, it just leads back to the ignorance of society of passing judgment without having all the information. You could you could relay it. Um, you know, you could say um, in, in the criminal world, you know, same thing. People pass judgment on criminals. You can say the same thing with the mental health world where, you know, like Arthur, where if somebody laughs inappropriately, instantly they're weird. Not, oh, they're a poor soul with a mental illness. No, they're weird. Keep my children away from that person. That's the way society passes judgment without having all the information. So, like I said, I've, I've, I've made that statement like six times at this point, but mm-hmm. it's it's just another reason that this movie is so stellar that they weren't scared to look at mental illness in the way that they did. So again, just kudos to Todd Phillips and everyone involved. I think it also kind of speaks to, there's a, you know, even though it takes place in like, you know, early, like that gritty late seventies, early eighties, New York kind of feel. But I think a lot of the topics that they bring up, like you were just talking about, like passing judgment. I mean, we are, we live in the world of the jury of social media, you know, and Twitter where people just brutalize each other without looking at evidence or looking at fact or, you know, we talked about earlier, Gary and, and Jerry, uh, just about how, you know, people don't re- think of the repercussions of, you know, being assholes to people that you're around all the time or, you know, you you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you're going to get shot. So I think there's a lot of like, even though it takes place in that earlier time, there's a lot of nods to a lot of the problems we have today, you know, and just the fact that we're willing to crucify someone just because they differ in belief or we don't get all the facts and we just decide to hop on the bandwagon or we decide like, Hey, I'm going to be an asshole to that guy because I think I'm better than he is. Well, that guy might have a gun. Uh, so those are real topics that happen today as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People just don't think before they speak or do something. A lot of the times, I mean, how many times have we had arguments with people about, you know, the words that they say and picking their words a little bit more carefully It's like in this day and age, we've got a thing called safe space. And that's a that's the opposite end of the spectrum where people who aren't being victimized but feel like they are think they need a safe space. Yet even those people don't think about people that are legitimately victimized on a daily basis, be it, you know, emotionally from 
you know, somebody with a mental illness physically, you know, in, in rape culture or whatever the case may be. Uh, again, it's just ignorance. It's just lack of information of the other side. And it's 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 really, really sad that it took a comic book movie to really um, put this stuff at the forefront. But I'm very glad they did. And, you know, ultimately, it's you know, it's it's an amazing film that I would imagine is going to win some Oscars. I can't imagine Joaquin Phoenix doesn't at least get a nomination, though. Anybody who knows me knows I watch everything. Like, you know, I have AMC A-list and Movie Pass and everything, you know, all those things. Um, so to see as many movies as I possibly can. And I can tell you right now, I have not seen a male performance as good as Joaquin Phoenix this year. So fingers crossed he gets the nomination and the award. And and that would and on a, on a on a less serious note too, if Joaquin wins a Oscar for this, this would just be another middle finger to Jared Leto's terrible fucking Joker uh, because two of the two of the last three Jokers won Oscars. Hmm, who's the third one? <laughs> well, he never really got a chance to really do anything in that Suicide movie, so. I'm not really gonna. I'm really not gonna fault him for that because from what I heard, they had a whole like hour and a half worth of Joker in that movie that they cut out. So I'm not gonna ding him on that one. So I, I, I am. I, I'm not gonna lay 100 percent of the blame on Leto because ultimately every movie has writers and directors, and if if. The director of that movie, if that's the Joker that he wanted, then Leto just did his job. He just did what he was told. And that's fine. I understand that. Uh, but I'm not, you know, so I'm not laying 100% of the blame on Leto. But ultimately, the scenes that were kept in the movie, I just felt like his performance was so forced. Like Heath Ledger, Jack Nicholson, and Joaquin Phoenix, all three, they made you believe that the Joker was insane, that he was legitimately, you know, psych, um, a psychopath that had mental problems. Jared Leto, he, th that performance felt forced. Like every time he tried to do something zany or wacky, it felt like he was forcing it. It never once felt natural. Now, I don't know if, if he would have played the role two or three more times, if he would have eventually gotten to a point where it did feel natural, his quote unquote insanity. But ultimately, Heath Ledger, Jack Nicholson and Joaquin Phoenix on their first attempt nailed it. So what's your excuse, buddy? <laughs> I, I think it's important to bring up um, what results of, of Arthur Fleck's, you know, murders, cause especially with the the last the last part of this film where they're basically having a massive riot because he w did what he set out to do, which is basically k kill people and start a revolution. I guess I don't know, but he, 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 that's not what he set out to do. But that, that's what they that's what they felt like. I think that the most of these critics, the critics of the film, and the people that are worried about, you know. You can't wear a mask in the movie theater. Obviously, stupid fucking ass. Who's gonna wear a fucking right. mask in the movie theater? What kind Ain't of nobody right because of this movie at all. I mean, they're fucking like, and I hate, I hate, I hate when they do this. You know, they they think we're that kind of nerd mm -hmm. that we live in our mother's basement and think about killing all the bullies that we hate. Yeah. If I kill everybody, if I kill everybody I hate, that's a long fucking list. Okay. <laughs> so, and I never act out of one goddamn time from a movie. Or fucking yep. music, or video game, or anything, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So quit patronizing us, media. We're not that fucking stupid, okay? And I can't believe like some of the things that I've that I've read, some of the reviews that I've read of Joker are actually calling it a dangerous movie that it could in, in that it could incite action. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Taxi Driver was from 1976. Taxi Driver is a way more violent movie than Joker. Yet, and I understand Taxi Driver was controversial, but it wasn't necessarily controversial for its violence. It was more controversial for Jodie Foster playing an underage prostitute. So right. I understand that aspect of it, but it's like if you're going to say that Joker is a dangerous movie, then tell me what did Taxi Driver do? What did it did, you know? It did, no, it did nothing like this. Exactly, movie did. it didn't change society, and Joker isn't going to change society either. If, and if, if you take out the ride, the ride, that looting and the rioting at the end, and you look at this movie for what it is, like you said, it's, it's a psychological case study of one guy. It's a very informative film that every, that everybody who who doesn't know about mental illness should watch, because there's a lot of real deal, you know, turmoil and a lot of real deal medicine in this movie that you could watch and you can say, yeah, I've I've observed this and maybe didn't realize it, you know, kind of thing. That's the and, problem with this weird kind of cancel culture that we're in right now too, you know, where it's people are so quick to blame things like movies instead of actually fixing roots of problem, like getting people better access to mental health. Where they'll think of, well, we shouldn't show this movie because it might trigger someone or offend someone. Like, you got to stop with this bullshit where we don't want to actually look at the actual problem instead mm -hmm. of just blaming a movie. Or, or fucking have a discussion. It's yeah, just laziness. I, That's all it is, laziness. I know parents who, who sit there, watch movies with their kids, and then afterwards, it, if, it's, if it's controversial like this film, they'll have a discussion about what they just watched. And it's amazing. You can put stuff into context and mm -hmm. your kids won't go crazy. You know, maybe that's going to be a thing in the future. I don't know, but uh, I like to think it does. You know, yeah, absolutely. But um, we we had some gripes about this film, and I'm I'm going to let the king of the gripes, and maybe not about this movie. <laughs> he gripes about a lot of films. Wild man, what are your gripes about Joker? I did not need to see the goddamn Bruce Wayne murdering the parents again for <laughs> umpteenth time. They didn't need to show him. Show um Joe Chill go around the corner and kill the parents again. I ain't need that. I didn't need it either, but I, I if they would have changed it up, I think I would have liked it better. Like maybe like they got like trampled by the rioters or something like that and Bruce got away. So I don't I, I actually really enjoyed what they did with the death this time because um, because th throughout the movie, especially after the Thomas Wayne angle was brought up, I was convinced that Arthur Fleck was actually going to kill uh, Thomas Wayne and Bruce Wayne's mother in that alley. I am so glad that they didn't go that angle because Joker is still indirectly responsible for Batman's parents' death because it was one of the rioters. And what were they rioting against? Rich people. It was it was basically a rich versus poor type of revolution that was going on in the movie. And this guy just, you know, he, he thought he knew what Joker's thing was and what his intention was. Obviously, Arthur Fleck never intended on starting a movement at all. That that all was just a happy accident. You can, but, you, you, you can tell, like, after he woke up, after he got in the car crash with, mm -hmm. with um, the ambulance, that he was he was proud of the world that he sort of created. 
Yeah, but but that was yeah, and but that was also the first instant when he realized that this thing was huge. That this wasn't just a few group of people uh, protesting in front of city hall. This was a legitimate movement, and you know, I, I think the power of that scene, him standing on top of that police car and soaking up the applause and admiration of his psychotic fans, I I think the power of that scene just can't be can't be spoken about enough like i'm not i wouldn't be able to put in the words how powerful that image of him standing on top of that cop car really is it's something that just needs to be experienced i could never give it justice but yeah i just uh it's but back to the murder uh, of of batman's parents like i said the fact that they kind of they didn't stay on it for too long it wasn't like a major scene in the film it went by really fast i mean the guy literally because you've seen it 10 times already jerry this is the problem i have with it being in there too is that you've seen it 10 times oh and and i do too (laughs) don't get me wrong like uh, same thing with spider-man i don't want to see uncle ben die fucking again i've seen it that was that that was the smartest thing they did in far in um yes homecoming was saying okay "Okay, this already happened i'm like good it already happened you know great move and and once again that shows you you know marvel cinematic universe maybe being a little bit savvier than dc Uh, you know i'm not going to get into the dc versus marvel argument right now i for the most part i don't do comparison arguments i didn't do it with tim curry and uh bill skarsgård for it i'm not going to do it today for heath ledger and um joaquin phoenix i'm going to make the same statement that i made during my it um fresh cuts episode both actors did stellar jobs tim curry was the perfect pennywise in 1990 for a television movie absolutely perfect bill skarsgård was damn near the perfect pennywise for a 2017 r-rated feature film and that's kind of how i look at these guys heath ledger spectacular i mean he won the oscar so we already know what a great job he did obviously if anybody's ever set eyes on the dark knight they know heath ledger had a stellar performance but this is just as willis mentioned earlier it's a whole different interpretation it's also a different timeline too don't forget heath ledger was already joker joker was joker when he first made his appearance in the dark knight this is an origin story joker doesn't show up until that very end when he's standing on top of the car, even though he's introduced as Joker on the Murray Franklin show, I feel like he didn't really, really become Joker until he saw those people cheering for him, you know, trashing cop cars, going against authority, all in the name of Arthur Fleck. So again, it's two different timelines, two different Jokers. And I think both performances are 10 out of 10. So you know, just just enjoy them both, people. Don't. There's no need to compare them. You can like two things. I assure you, you can. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I. That's about the. That's about the end of my notes. Anything else you guys got? One of the. I'm sorry. Sorry, let's go ahead. And another thing I didn't like about the movie was the fact that. It kind of made Thomas Wayne into an asshole, but maybe he wasn't really an asshole. Maybe that was just Joker's interpretation of him. Because I'd, I'd, I'd imagine he was getting constant letters from 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 Mrs. Yeah. Fleck about yeah. you know the whole "this is your son" yada yada yada. He's being basically badgered by this mentally ill woman. So I'd imagine when 
it came out and he sent he finally sent her a letter to say basically back the fuck off that you know whatever and he went to go confront him in the bathroom that that scene is basically the breaking point is saying you know what I'm not your fucking father your mother's fucked in the head you know that, that that's I, oh, I'm sorry um, I was I was just gonna say I I actually liked what they did with Thomas Wayne now again. Uh, we've never really, I mean, th- this is the only movie that ever featured Thomas Wayne as like a major character. I know we got a, we got a little bit of him during Batman Returns, um, you know, during the falling in the well scene and things like that. Um, but ultimately, I felt again, once again, I felt like this was a very realistic and organic portrayal of an ultra rich person. And I hate to bring race into it, but again, an ultra rich white person. And you got to think that when people become that rich, they're going to develop a contempt for the poor. They're not always going to sympathize. You know, it's that bubble. Rich people live in a bubble. They don't notice homeless people. They're not even people to them. So like I said, once again, because this movie is not canon, I like the chances that Todd Phillips took with multiple characters in the movie, but I actually did like Thomas Wayne because yeah, he, he does come off as an asshole, but he's, he doesn't come off as necessarily a bad guy. You know what I mean? Like, I think, he, it, I think it goes by like breaking point. We're talking about breaking points before because there, there's a point where, where Arthur goes to the Wayne, Wayne Manor and he attacks Alfred because he won't, he won't take him to Thomas Wayne. And you know, he, he, he's aware of all this when they would meet him in the bathroom. So, at that point, after, you know, probably countless letters that Mrs. Sure. Clark has sent him in the mail, and that situation of him actually going there, he had every right to be, to give some backlash to Arthur Fleck. Absolutely. Oh, I don't, I, I'm not saying that Thomas Wayne is an asshole because he hit Arthur Fleck. No, not at all. No, not I'm only, yeah, I'm only saying that he's an asshole because of his contempt for the poor, which right. they do speak, you know, I mean, they quote him on one of the news articles where he's talking about how, you know, they're lazy or that they don't take advantage of opportunities and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's just a rich white people way of saying, you know, you're, you're lazy or a piece of shit and stay away from me. And that's kind of how he looks at Arthur. He knows that Arthur and his mother are poor. So when he sees Arthur's mother try to play the, oh, this is your child angle, it's probably a ploy for money. And when a rich person sees a poor pe- a poor person trying to take their money without um, having good reason, they kind of just turn into an asshole. I mean, hell, I do too. I'm not even rich. If I, you know, somebody covets my favorite Jason Voorhees action figure, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna turn into an asshole and probably punch him in the mouth too. But the point is, is um, yeah, I, I definitely don't think that Thomas Wayne is an asshole in this movie because of any interaction that he has with Arthur. I thought those all felt organic, very natural, very expected. Um, like I said, it, just his his obvious discontent and, you know, just kind of disgust with the lower class. That's where I kind of, you know, say that he's kind of an asshole. But again, I feel like it was very realistic because hell, none of us on this show are billionaires. We don't know what it's like to be a billionaire. Who knows if after 10, 20, 30 years of being a billionaire that you're just, you know, always in your gigantic castle and the outside world doesn't even exist. You know what I mean? Um, Willis is an African-American male. How, how many times 
to the Cosby show come on and they dare to tell you to your face this is how black America should be. You can't relate to those fucking people. Come on. I hated no. the Cosby show as a kid, so I watched it. You can't you can't relate to those fucking people, you know? I watched it but I didn't really care, but that's a whole different story now with my man <laughs> and his pudding pop. Plus, <laughs> yeah. ah. we, we all know what happens. I hate to bring politics to this when you give some some rich privileged asshole a microphone or, 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 or a Twitter account, you know, so something happens, you know, so there you are. Well, it's true. I mean, rich people are only used to dealing with other rich people, so they don't always know how to pick their words carefully when talking about a class of people that they're not a part of, be it the poor, be it another race of people, whatever the case may be. They just, you know, they don't always pick the proper words. And, you know, not everyone can be, you know, Elon Musk or you know, um, Murdoch, that Rupert Murdoch dude who tends for the most part to say the right things, though they've both had their little faux pas as well over the years. But again, that's a story for another podcast. But ultimately, I just think that rich people in general, um, they tend to live in a bubble. And Thomas Wayne's response to the lower class in that movie felt realistic. Ultimately, I know the movie's not canon and you know, we're still going to think of Thomas Wayne as a good, loving father who cared about Gotham and cared about the citizens, because that's the interpretation that we get most of the time. And that's fine. I, you know, I don't have a major problem with that. I just felt that this one, again, in even though it was 1981 in the film, in a 2019 movie, I felt like that was an accurate portrayal of what a rich person would think of the lower class. So eh, I, I don't have as many problems with it as Willis does, but I can see how a diehard Batman or a comic book fan would have a major issue with taking a character who was always looked at as a good loving guy and suddenly he's a big jerk. So yeah, I can see how somebody would take offense to that, but I personally enjoyed it. Yeah. Even though I look at it like this, we don't know if it's true or not. We don't know if this whole movie was real or not. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the back of our that, heads. That, that yeah. very ambiguous it's ending where it, it, it fades to white and then he's he's with the doctor again. So you don't know. Yeah, you don't know. And I do love that about this film. I'm grateful that with that ending and I'm grateful that this didn't take place during like social media times because I would have been all over this fucking movie and I would have hated it. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, um... One one gripe I have is is the is the Joe Cool thing, but another gripe I have is um, I almost wish that that you, it was like inconclusive that if he was Thomas Wayne's son or not, because that would have made the Joker Batman relationship over all these years even more cooler than it already is, because they've always had the animosity, but like closeness to each other at the same time as 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 individuals. Where if you read. Batman books over the years, whether it be the one shots or the detective comics or whatever Batman you're reading, they've always had that ambiguous relationship to say mm -hmm. there's some kind of weird connection here between these because the Rogues Gallery is huge in the Batman universe, but oh, none yeah, of them had had that relationship like Joker and Batman had all, over all these years. And I think yeah. that if, if you didn't know that they were brothers, if it was inconclusive, that would have been in the back of your brain, like maybe. It's one of those. Okay, he he was the poor kid, and Bruce lived with the super silver spoon in his mouth. So this is why they had this animosity towards each other, like deep down inside. I could see it. I I could see it, but I'm not always a fan of. 
indiscriminately adding a family relationship to a movie. And I'll, I'll always point to Halloween as my example. Yeah. I absolutely love the original Halloween, but then when they bring out Halloween 2 and they start saying that Laurie Strode is, is, is related to Michael Myers... To me, that felt like lazy writing. Even back in 81, when I first saw the movie, I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't fucking do that. And there are, there, and there I, are, there are worse things in that movie, and that's Jamie Lee Curtis's wig in that movie. So oh, absolutely. Out there. No, no, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Halloween 2 is not... Especially, I mean, I, I just saw it recently, well, at least in the last few months. And yeah, it, it's... I've I've always grown up loving that movie, but at, looking at it with a critical eye, oh, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of things that Michael does in that movie that don't make sense. Blah blah blah. We're we're getting off on a tangent yes. again, but yeah, I mean, I, I to go back to the original point, I've never been a fan of suddenly having a f- a family connection between a hero and a villain. Oh, uh, I, I, I didn't I didn't want that. I'm just I'm just saying like the thought. It's more like the thought of your back of your brain. Oh, like sure, what, sure. Like a what if kind of thing, not reality though. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I, w- I I'm also a big comic book reader at least, or at least I was. And I, I spent years watching Marvel comics do that with Wolverine and Sabretooth. Are they related? Are they not related? Oh, they're half brothers. Oh, wait, nope. That story didn't actually occur in the real unit. You know, blah 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 blah. And it's like ultimately, I didn't care. It's like I just want to see Wolverine and Sabretooth beat the shit out of each other till one of them dies. You know what I mean? We want action in our superhero comics. We don't necessarily always need added drama. Like I, I um, and just like you said, I mean, you didn't necessarily need for Joker and Batman to have an actual blood connection, but I, I just I, I see it working for a lot of people, and I see it not working for a lot of people. And like I said. And I'm part of the latter group where I just feel like it's lazy writing when they just out of nowhere are like, oh, they're actually related. What? But in, what? In, in this movie, though, <laughs> I think it was important that he learned all that he learned, though. So oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm not yeah. bitching about it at all. It's oh. just something that oh, I wish no, that no, would have happened. <laughs> I it guess something to um, blow your mind. Guess what they've been hitting at in the comic books before this movie came out? Hmm. Uh-oh. Exactly what was going on in this movie. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read a Batman comic in probably a good twenty years or so. So, well, well you mentioned uh, you mentioned John Carpenter. He just wrote a Joker book that's out on the shelves right now. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, and I did want to actually pick that up just because Carpenter wrote it. Yeah, I did read about that. But you know, we'll see. Um, like I said, uh, when it comes to concepts and comic books and translating them to film. You're, there's always going to be the two sides of the camp, you know, the the one group that's like, oh, that's not canon. That didn't happen in the comic books. I don't accept it. And then there's the other group of like, oh, they tried something new, whether it worked or not. They can appreciate the fact that they tried something new. So um, I, I, once again, I am in the latter camp. I have never had a problem with film adaptations, making minor changes to comic books or, or even, you know, large books like Lord of the Rings or whatever. It's like you can't always film every word that was written in the original book. It's it's an impossibility. The movie would be it would cost like a billion dollars to film. So I understand having to make changes from books. And being that I was a huge comic book fan in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, um, I've I've just never had a major problem with them making changes. I Obviously, we want the changes to work. If they make a change that's just dumb and it makes the movie stupid, then, you know, that's on them. 
but ultimately I, I am okay. I'm kind of indifferent to how close the adaptation is to the original source material, you know? I, I, love the, I, I just want a I, movie. I love the Batman <laughs> book so much that first time I met Neil Adams, I gave him a giant hug. I don't know if you nice. thought it was weird or anything, you know, but uh, I love Batman that much. And, uh, I'd, I'd probably give Alan Moore a hug if I ever met him. <laughs> get, get lost in that beard, you know? Exactly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, what, you got any gripes about the film, sir? Uh, not one. Okay. No, I, <laughs> nope, not one. Like I said, I, I really feel like this is my favorite movie of the last 10 years, so I have... You know, I I could certainly find a few things to nitpick, but it's not worth it. I just I loved it too much. Yeah, cool. I mean, I I only have one very minor one, and it's not even all that much of a nitpick. And that's that I wish Arthur Fleck's character arc wasn't exactly like Travis Bickle's in Taxi Driver. I mean, go back and watch Taxi Driver if you haven't seen it in a while. And replace Robert De Niro with Joaquin Phoenix, and they're almost the same movie, the same, you know, misunderstanding of mental health, misunderstanding of a crime that was committed, misunderstanding of a relationship going on between a man and a woman. I mean, they're they're so identical. And I'm just, again, I'm not talking about specific story beats or um, you know, ideas, you know, between the two films. I am only talking about Arthur Fleck's character arc in this film. It's almost identical to Travis Bickle's and Taxi Driver. And I thought about that more on my second watch than I did on the first, but I did notice it on the first, especially because the movie's set in Gotham City, which, as most comic book fans know, is kind of intended to be New York City. Yeah. So, you know, um, you get those similarities there, too. But like I said, it's such a minor gripe that it's not even really a gripe because I'm not necessarily saying that it took me out of the movie or that it took anything away from my experience at all. It was just something I thought about in the theater of, oh, wow, this, you know, uh, Arthur seems a lot like Travis Bickle. But, you know, like I said, that's it. If this if Arthur's character arc could have been a little bit more original, a little bit less you know, taxi driver. And, you know, obviously Todd Phillips being such a huge fan of Martin Scorsese. I mean, I've actually heard him on interviews actually say he was his favorite director when he was growing up, that he absolutely loved everything Scorsese did and actually wanted to be him, you know, to, to an extent he kind of is now he's not at the stature of Scorsese by any stretch, but he's got a couple of decent films under his belt. Joker now shows that he's got, Oscar cred that he can actually make Oscar bait films, uh, you know, dramas and whatnot. So, you know, hopefully this, you know, hopefully this film not only brings better things in the future for Joaquin Phoenix, which we obviously know it will. I mean, he's already a, you know, stud actor that most people love. Um, but also for Todd Phillips, I hope that he definitely sees an upsurge in his career um, because you know, showing that, yes, I can do Oscar type films. So, you know, hopefully he's, he'll continue on his path of emulating Scorsese because I've actually played poker with Todd Phillips, but believe it or not, just nice. once um, I was at the bicycle casino and he just happened to sit down at the same table that I was sitting at. 
I believe I was playing $200 No Limit Texas Hold'em at the time. Um, I didn't actually really talk to him that much other than saying I was a fan of his films, but he was such a quiet, unassuming guy that, you know, it, it seemed like most people were leaving him alone. But yeah, yeah, that's the that's my uh, connection to the Joker. I played poker with Todd Phillips once. <laughs> yeah, now, the only reason I'm asking for ratings, and this is where we're going to wrap it up, basically, is because I'm always curious what Willis is going to say. So, Willis, <laughs> what do you give this sucker 1 to 10? Well, I have to give it a 9 because I really enjoy this movie. But a movie that kind of put me to sleep once, it, it has to be knocked off points because of that. This is one of the better Joker performances I've seen in a while. But to me, always and will be my favorite Joker is the one from Batman, the animated series. Because Mark Hamill is the one that got it on the nose with everything that Joker is to me. When I hear the comic book and seeing Joker, that's the only person that comes to mind more than anybody else. <laughs> you can nice. always say that he's Willis's buddy, you know, B-U-D-I. You know, come on now. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brandon, what about you, sir? I'd, I'm sure it's a tough one to guess, but I'm 10 out of 10. <laughs> both, both of you. So. Venom. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, based on Joaquin's Phoenix performance alone, this movie gets a 10 out of 10 from me. I mean, we didn't even talk about the laugh. I mean, the fact that I, I, I didn't think I needed another Joker laugh. We've had so many over the years, but in walks Joaquin Phoenix with, with once again, a very original Joker laugh that actually works. You know, it, I mean, he can laugh in a way that it's where it's you're un- sad for it's, him. It's uncomfortable to watch is what exactly. he did for you. Yes. But then he also has a laugh where it's menacing, where you're almost afraid of him because of the laugh. Um, on top of the fact that I also wanted to give him uh, Joaquin Phoenix some props because uh he actually watched videos of people who suffer from pathological laughter, and he was actually trying to emulate um, their facial expressions when they're laughing and they're in an uncomfortable situation. The grabbing of his throat whenever his throat would catch when he would laugh too hard. Um, he got that from that video. So, I mean, this man is, is an artist, and I, I'm going to be I, I'm going to make a bold statement here. I hated Joaquin Phoenix coming into this movie. I've never liked Joaquin Phoenix. I thought he ruined Gladiator for me. Um, I'm sure people have varying opinions on Joaquin Phoenix. I I did start to come around last year with that movie, She Was Never Really Here, or You You Were Never Really Here, whatever the name of that movie was. That was a good one. that was a great movie with a really, really good brooding performance by Joaquin Phoenix. So that's where I started to kind of... Turn, he's had, um, he's towards, had a weird fucking career, though. He really has, yeah. And like I said, uh, it's not just his movie roles. I mean, even like some of his late night TV show appearances, and he had that rap stage when you know when he was when he. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah. I mean, all of that combined made me hate this guy. He, I, I felt like he was just a a basic Hollywood douchebag that I would probably just punch in the mouth if I ever met him. But let me tell you, Joker completely turned me around. I am now a fan to see what he did last year and you were never really here. And now being able to give us 
a very grounded to reality interpretation of Joker. Just absolutely stellar. I've already said he deserves the Oscar, so I'm sure it comes as no surprise. 10 out of 10 for me as well. This movie is almost perfect. Yeah, I'm, I, I dig it. I, but there's those little bits that it, I, I can't really say that I think it's a perfect film, so I, I got to give it a nine because it's damn near perfect. And um, yeah. to be fair, you know, to, to my own senses, I'm going to give it a nine and leave oh, it Oh, absolutely. Got to be true to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but um, hey, two nines and two tens, that's pretty fucking good. Last I, time I, I expected a seven out of Willis. So I'm not even going to lie to you. I was, I was waiting <laughs> for it. But uh, I'm proud of you, wild man. But um, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, this is where we pimp our stuff. So Brandon. First time on the show ever, so you pimp your stuff first, sir. Yeah, man. Thanks again for having me on. It was uh, when I saw you asking if anyone wanted to talk about it, I got excited because I love this movie and I enjoy your show and I like all of you hosts. So, um, yeah, my main show is The Anatomy of Fear. So you can find us on any podcast directory um, or at anatomyoffear.com. And I have turned into a frequent guest host on No More Room and Hell Presents Fresh Cuts, which is cool. I've almost done more episodes of that than my own show. Um, cause we're a little slow on anatomy of fear. Uh, and then uh, on my website, uh, and that's hardstepdesign.com and that's a mixture of my photography and, uh, my film reviews. So again, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, sir. Always, always welcome. Uh, it's, it's all good, it's good stuff. Uh, Mr. Wildman. MFW podcast and my YouTube page, Wildman Willis reviews. Cool. Nice. Now I'm going to hold my breath and say, Mr. Venom. I'll be quick. I swear. Okay. Um, as most people know, the horror cast is back after a six or seven month hiatus earlier in the year. We've already recorded three episodes in succession. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be a, a weekly podcast for a little while, as long as schedules allow. So check us out on, you know, any, any service that you get your podcasts on, um, that's the horror cast. Oh, we're not on any particular network. We're an independent um, podcast. That's the only independent podcast I'm on. Uh, you can also hear me on No More Room in Hell, which is the mother podcast to No More Room in Hell presents Fresh Cuts, which Brandon already mentioned. On No More Room in Hell, we tend to look at slightly older horror, not you know like classic necessarily, but you know more 70s, 80s, 90s type stuff. Um, along with a lot of our favorites along the way, our very first episode we did the original George Romero zombie trilogy, um, you know the Dead trilogy, um, and then on Fresh Cuts we just look at new movies, the, the newest movies we can find. If a movie opens in the on Friday, usually within a couple of days of its release, we'll record an episode on that movie. If there's nothing available in theaters, then we'll start um, checking out VOD and streaming and see what's been released. On um, the last episode, uh, I believe we looked at uh, well, Brandon. Were you on the last episode? Was that one cut of the dead, or was that something? Was uh, I mean, after that? I was I was on one cut of the dead. That may have been the last one, but I also don't remember what I had for dinner two nights ago, so I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and then for the next episode, we'll be recording that this week. We still haven't decided on the movie, um, but, you know, there's a lot of good options that have been released. Obviously, it's October, so a lot of good horror gets released. A lot of bad horror gets released as well. But, you know, uh, we talk about all of it on Fresh Cuts. Uh, let's see. You can also hear me on the Slice and Dice Dreadcast. Um, that podcast is unfortunately on a little bit of a hiatus right now while uh, Joey Colombo gets back into, uh, you know, uh, fall mode, you know. Uh, he was on summer vacation all summer. So once he gets back into the swing of things, 
Shall we be napping? Shall we be napping, man? Exactly. My latest podcast is called Cult Unknown. I do that with Mr. Jerry Herring from Kill the Cast. Um, that podcast is basically conspiracy theories, cryptozoology, um, unsolved mysteries, things like that. We've only done one episode so far, and on our first episode, we did Bigfoot. Um, we didn't really tackle like its whole gigantic history and all its massive amount of um, eyewitness accounts and things like that. But we basically told a couple of our favorite Bigfoot stories that we had found, you know, during our research. We also discussed exists the found footage Bigfoot film from the director of the Blair Witch. Um, and on our next episode of Cult Unknown, we're going to be looking at aliens. Uh, we haven't decided what aspect of aliens we're actually going to be looking at, but uh, that'll be coming sometime in November as October is very booked with all the horror screenings. I go to multiple film festivals. I've already been to Beyond Fest and Scream Fest in October, and then I got Shriek Fest uh, next week, also in L.A., so I'm seeing a lot of independent horror and a lot of like stuff that's looking for financing and distribution and whatnot, so I'm busy in L.A. It's a great time to be a horror fan in LA, let me tell you. Um, and then uh, another podcast I have with Mr. Jerry Herring is Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space. That is, of course, our Godzilla slash Kaiju podcast where we talk about all things Japanese monsters, including our uh, weekly retrospective on uh, the Ultraman series, the original Ultraman series from 1967. And I th is that it for me? I think that's it. I may have forgotten one, but... That's I don't okay. know, but I just finished just now, so... <laughs> God. I'm tired, Keith. I'll talk about ejaculation jokes, but uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah, this show, the normal show, Cinebeef Podcast, and two Jake Venom commentaries can both be found at legionpodcast.com. Um, please inflict charity auction, if you haven't been paying attention. It's coming very, very soon. It comes the uh, second weekend of December. I'm waiting for some more stuff to come. I'm, I've got one more convention to go to. Latest item uh, up for bids is a nice 11 by 14 print that Jake the Snake Roberts, the inventor of the DDT, donated uh, to the auction. So if you're a wrestling fan, it's a nice big print. It's a nice big signature on there, too. So it'd be looking real nice in somebody's collection. Um, yeah, that's about it for me. Twitter, GW, Twitter, City Beef Cast. Come support the Legion Patreon uh, if you guys haven't yet. That's a thing. Help Uncle Bo pay the bills. If you, uh, yeah, <laughs> he makes all this magic happen, people. But um, that's it for this one, and uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see you all again at the movies or something like that, huh? Adios. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. See you. Sometimes I feel a little mad But don't you know that no one alive Can always be an angel When things go wrong I seem to be bad Sometimes it seems that all I have to do is worry.
free And then you're bound to see my other side I'm just a soul whose intentions are good Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood If I seem edgy, I want you to know That I never mean to take it out on you Life has its problems and I get my share And that's one thing I never mean to do Cause I love you, oh, 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 baby Don't you know I'm human Have thoughts like any other one Sometimes I find myself alone regretting Some foolish thing, some little sinful thing I've done Understood. Yes, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Yes, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. 